Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. We come to the end of another week here on Political Rewind. And um, as always, I'm glad all of you out there are with us for today's show. As I mentioned on the show yesterday, I want to be careful about uh, getting too excited about our special guest today. But her new novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, is one of the most powerful, uh, most breathtaking books I personally have read in many years. And believe me, I'm far from alone. It's now an Oprah Book Club uh, choice. Oprah Winfrey is singing uh, the praises of our guest, who I'm going to introduce in just a minute. And a lot of this book is set right here in Georgia, where her uh, maternal family has deep roots. Before we get to Honoré Fanon Jeffers, though, let me introduce my Friday partner on Political Rewind, Patricia Murphy. You know Patricia as a political reporter and columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read her column on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper. And, of course, she oversees the Jolt, which is a daily rundown of lots of really good tidbits about what's happening in politics here in Georgia and elsewhere. Uh, Patricia, before we introduce our guest, I think you and I should take just a moment. We here on this show and you and your colleagues at the AJC have spent a good deal of time over the last week talking about how the state of Georgia, Governor Kemp and other officials are responding to this uh, latest surge, which has gotten out of control in the state of Georgia. Um, and now we know we're going to be watching it very carefully in the days ahead. President Biden last night issues a mandate which could uh, impact as many as 80 million American workers who he says will now be required through their jobs to become to be vaccinated. Federal employees will have to be vaccinated. And we've already, Patricia, seen pushback from Brian Kemp and other Republican governors who say they're going to sue over this. Although the question is, what what essentially will their case be, Patricia? Well, you're right. Governor Kemp has said he'll pursue every legal option available to the state of Georgia to stop this blatantly unlawful overreach by the Biden administration. Um, now, this statement from Governor Kemp comes um, at the same time as so many of our hospitals have reached total capacity. Um, Grady Memorial Healthcare cannot accept emergency patients anymore. They are turning away patients um, with serious conditions because they are just simply overwhelmed with, um, with COVID patients, especially in the ICUs. And we know uh, from the data that this is a, uh, a problem and a really affecting people who are unvaccinated. So the route out of this catastrophe right now is through vaccination. And I think after um, many weeks and months of providing the vaccine, making it available, making it um, uh, something that every American could have access to, President Biden has gotten really to the point where this is a public health crisis. He's taking strong steps. Uh, the legal grounds that the state of Georgia could apply to a federal mandate for federal workers is not clear. Um, and then even some of the mandates uh, that Governor Kemp has tried to get in the way of uh, at the local level, uh, that all, those also have some, some legal problems as well. So we'll see how this plays out. We're going to be following it very, very carefully over um, the next days and weeks, because certainly um, thousands and thousands and thousands of Georgians will be affected by this. Um, thank you for uh, all of that. We will be talking about this an awful lot uh, uh, next week as the story develops over the weekend. It certainly will. Uh, it's, uh, there's no question it's not going to do anything to somehow ease the toxic partisan environment that sprung up around vaccines, around the virus itself. Um, so there may be some very disturbing days around this uh, coming up, and we'll be talking about it extensively on Political Rewind. Uh, today, though, I am really, as I said, excited uh, to be able to talk to the author of the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, Honoré Fanon Jeffers. Um, she comes to us today from Norman, Oklahoma, where she is as a, a professor uh, at the University of Oklahoma. Um, Jeffers is a, is a poet and has been an acclaimed poet for a very long time. 
it's not surprising that she received a, a, a lot of recognition, including an NAACP Image Award, for her uh, story in poet, poetry of the life of Phyllis Wheatley, who in many ways uh, is a predecessor of uh, Professor Jeffers, having been, as many people may not know, uh, really the first African-American woman of uh, literature, of letters, uh, to emerge uh, in the middle of the 18th century. All that said, this is her first novel. It is a sweeping epic of African-American life here in Georgia um, and other parts of the country uh, through the eyes of one family. The hero of the book, uh, Ailey Pearl Garfield, has roots that go back to uh, the Creek Indians in Georgia many centuries ago, and we watch her and her family coming up through the ages uh, into the present. So uh, let me say, Honoré, I, I hope you don't mind if we call you by your first name, but um, I feel like we've gotten to know you just from reading the book. Welcome to this show. Thank you, you so there? much. <laughs> yeah. Thank you yeah. so much. So let me, a couple, let me start by um, quickly saying that when I announced yesterday you were going to be on the show today, um, I got a, a note from uh, uh, Nakima Williams, Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who said uh, she was excited you were going to be on because you, uh, she, she says, you and she are both proud alums of Talladega College, and beyond that, your mother, uh, I hope I say it right, Trelly Jeffers. Well, so that, Nakima that Williams was, says, sends greetings. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we are just so proud of um, of, of Congresswoman Williams. Um, we talk about her all the time, positively, of course, in alumni circles of Talladega College. My mother is just thrilled. She loves to brag on all of her former students. So um, I didn't even know that Congresswoman uh, uh, Williams was aware of my presence. So this is just so thrilling for me. Uh, she, she says that uh, she is a good friend of your nephew and niece, Toussaint, and I don't, I don't remember the other one's name. And Gabby. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they were, they were um, teenagers. Um, when my, they were, um, my mother raised them, they were little kids. When um, I was at Saladiga, I guess like five and seven, and they ran through the campus and everybody knew them. And they, you know, there would be people, you know, babysitting them or whatever. So Saladiga is a real small town and uh, everybody knows everybody. Everybody's in everybody's business. We're going to talk about uh, the uh, way in which you you uh, portray life in a historically black college here in Georgia, and it's a, a, what for me a revelation uh, because I don't know, haven't known much about what that life has been like. But but let me start, and then Patricia will uh, certainly jump in. Let me start by saying it's interesting that your roots are in Eatonton, Georgia. That was where your mother grew up. I have to say it's an interesting uh, uh, place because that's where Alice Walker uh, grew up, but it's also where Joel Chandler Harris uh, hailed from, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter who wrote the, the Song of the South, the Uncle Remus stories, a white journalist who today is looked at in a, as a somewhat controversial uh, figure, but what I think is interesting about those two is so much in your book talks about intersections between black and white people, and you can go back to your mother's hometown and see it right there with those two people, uh, Andre. Yes, um, Mama, um, my whole maternal line is from Edenton, then we have some people in, in uh, Milledgeville. We consider Milledgeville the big city compared to Edenton, <laughs> and my mother actually taught Alice Walker back in um, junior high school, yeah. So that's how small that little town is. And Joe Chandler Harris, um, I don't have much rancor against him. I mean, these the Uncle Remus tales were the frame that he wrote um, surrounding what were 
traditional African-American as well as Native American, indigenous folk tales. So for me, even though he is a controversial figure, I do have a lot of gratitude that he wrote the tales down since so much of African-American history has been erased, you know, on purpose. Um, Patricia, I want you to jump in, uh, and uh, because you and I both know there are a lot of themes in this book we want to talk about. There are so many themes in this book. Um, I absolutely loved it. I just want to get that out there. It's just, I literally, I just kept reading and thinking, how in the world, how in the world did anyone do this, let alone somebody whose um, really first profession is poetry, uh, to create this this long sweeping novel and keep the plot going and keep um, keep uh, the characters alive and go back and bring in new characters. It was just a, it's just such an achievement. I just, I cannot congratulate you enough as a writer to see another writer produce something like this to me. It's just, it's just breathtaking. I have to be honest. Um, but I want to uh, also just dip into what I thought. One thing that struck me immediately um and I think our listeners will get so much out of it when they read this book, is how you really brought the history of the Creek people um, in Georgia to life and combine that with um, African-Americans, enslaved Americans, and then brought that all the way up to um, your, your contemporary characters. I did not know so much of the history that you have put in this book. And you've also not only put it in there, but you've brought it to life through characters. And um, I was so interested in your choice to bring the Creek people in um, as a part of this story that then also becomes a story about um, a a mostly African-American family? Well, one of the reasons that, or the primary reason that I decided to include the Creek people is because um, this was their land. Eatonton, Milledgeville, Madison, pushing out west towards what is now Alabama. This is their land. And so I, when I knew that I was going to tell a, a, a sweeping historical story, which is not what I intended in the, in the very beginning, um, I, I knew that I had to be respectful. Um, if, if I was going to tell an ancestral story, I needed to start with the original ancestors of what became the place called um, Georgia. Um, The other reason I did it is that um, I had read, now definitely Native American colleagues and creative writing and um, Native American studies, Native American history deal a lot, of course, with their own history. But one of the reasons I also included this history is because when I was reading non-Indigenous writers, they would simply have one or two lines, and then the Indians were gone. And, and, and that bothered me even before I knew the history. You know, I knew that, I mean, obviously that the land had, to, even if I didn't know the granular details, I knew that the land had belonged to Native American people. And so... I felt like I wanted to be that writer who, you know, really delved deep into the Afro-Indigenous um, history. Um, one of the things that you write about when you tell us about the story of the Creeks, uh, Miko, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Miko, is really kind of yes. the Miko uh, it is kind of the beginning of the line that leads us all the way to the 20th century to uh, Ailey. Uh, and um, you talk about, uh, we also learn about, about Miko through the lens of two white men, Samuel Pincher uh, and, and, um, and, and an associate of Aiden his. Frank. Who decides, yeah. <laughs> right? Thank you. Who decides to build his hut, his cottage rather, on a sacred mound to the Creek people. And it leads him to misery throughout his life. But we should point out that if you go down uh, to that area uh, in, in Milledgeville and, and, and Eatonton around there, those sacred mounds are there to be seen. I mean, they exist today. You can touch history uh, down there, mm-hmm. can't you? 
You can, but for me, I find that deeply uncomfortable that people are sort of stomping all over somebody's sacred, you know, place. Um, I guess that is uh, human progress, as it were. Um, but that's one of the things that I wanted to think about is spirituality as a living thing um, that continues. And also the land as a living thing. Um, what does the land remember? You know, my mother, I remember um, she uh, one day, this was maybe about 15 years ago, uh, we were driving through Eatonton, might, might have been 20, you know, time has no meaning now during this pandemic. And um, and I said, Mama, you know, where, where, where did your house used to be? Because my mother was literally born and reared in an abandoned slave shack in Eatonton. And so she said, well, you know, the house has been gone for a really long time, but I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, take you down to where it used to be. And as we were, I was driving. The landmarks were gone. And she was so upset. And my mother is not a crier. She is someone who um, considers that to be weakness. So when you see my mother cry or get close to tears, she's really upset. And I sort of internally kicked myself, like, why did I push her towards this? And then I started thinking about all of the the ways that the that the the visual rhetoric of the land changes, but if the land were a living thing, what would be its memory? And at first, that sounded goofy to me, but as I started getting into writing, I thought, yeah, that's that's what I wanted to do. Patricia. Well, I uh, I think about that all the time with the land, is particularly around um, in Georgia, even around Atlanta, it changes so quickly. If you just think about all the stories it could tell, if it could talk, uh, probably it would sound a lot like your book, to be honest with you. Um, and one of the devices that you use, I don't want to call it device, but the fact that um, Ailey, who was your, your main character and heroine, um, lives in basically two worlds. She has sort of her main her main life in Washington, D.C., but then she comes to Georgia in the summers. And that, to me, spoke so much about really the two worlds that African-Americans um, culturally today inhabit. Um, but you really, for, for those of us who are not African-American, you have brought us into the African-American culture in a way that I have never seen on pages before. Um, and I don't know if that was the goal of what you were setting out to do, but um, I do feel like you've led us into a world that is really sometimes uh, by necessity um, closed off to be just among um, uh, Black Americans to inhabit the world that that they have to themselves. Yes. Um, the, well, the first thing I say is it's real funny that people assume that the city is Washington, D.C., because I never named oh. it. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. okay, though. <laughs> I mean, there are, there, are, there are reasons for that, and that is that I don't know Washington, D.C., so I didn't want to get in trouble. But there are sort of, you know, hints that it may be Washington, D.C. In terms of opening up, I've always written about um, – little known aspects of African-American culture, or I'll say little known outside of scholarly, you know, historical, um, uh, uh, literary critics, et cetera. But um, I, I'm going to try to say this delicately. As this country has um, descended again into great division, um, I knew that even though my book is primarily I write for me and I write for those who look like me, but I want everybody to read my book, okay? But, you know, I think every artist writes from within, and as an African-American woman, I write from within from that point of view. But I felt like it was important for cultural understanding, to begin, there's a quote from the great W.B. Du Bois around the first third of the book where um, from his um, germinal essay, The Talented Tenth, you misjudge us because you do not know us. And so 
maybe it sounds corny, but I feel like if we understood each other a little bit more, people of different races, maybe maybe we wouldn't, you know, keep having all of this strife and division. So I thought, you know, opening up my world, which is a very sort of secretive world, right? I won't say secretive, but, you know, black folks know all about it. You know, when, when uh, Vice President Kamala Harris was elected, we all knew about, you know, the renowned um, uh, sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha uh, Sorority Incorporated, Congresswoman Nakima Williams is a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha. Um, we all knew about uh, Howard University. My late sister is a graduate of, of Howard Law School, which um, the first African-American Supreme Court Justice, Thurgood Marshall, is a graduate of Howard uh, Law. But it's something that others didn't know. And so I wanted to increase some understanding in order to open up that world. Um, I've certainly learned a lot from this. But I want to I pick up a little bit on what Patricia said about the extraordinary feat here. This is kind of a process question, I suppose. But um, my understanding is that you initially – switching from poetry to writing your first novel, initially thought, gee, it'd be great if I could write a nice beach read, a nice summer uh, commercial book. And then you got into this thing, which is 800 pages long. And I want to tell people out there, if you look at this, uh, if you're in an actual physical bookstore, which is always a thrilling thing to be able to do, uh, don't be put off by the, the length of this book, because it is totally absorbing. But, but here's what I wanted to mention. Not only has this been deeply researched um, in terms of the history by you, but it is a feat of extraordinary, prodigious imagination. You have written about a family, as I said, that dates back to the middle of the 18th century, dozens and dozens of characters that come into play, and I can only assume hundreds of stories that you um, either pulled out of your own upbringing or imagined and put into this book. And and if you don't mind, can I, may I, you, you W.E.B. Du Bois is the glue uh, through the book. May I read one of the quotes that you start the book with of his? Because it'll lead to my asking you to talk about the way in which you put this together. Here is from W.E.B. Here is from his of the sorrow songs. He said, they that walked in darkness sang songs in the olden days, sorrow songs, for they were weary at heart. And so before each thought that I have written in this book, I have said a phrase, a haunting echo of these weird old songs in which the souls of the black slaves spoke to men. Ever since I was a child, these songs have stirred me strangely. They came out of the South, unknown to me one by one, and yet at once I knew them as of me and of mine. And it feels like that's how the book came together for you as well in some ways. Yes, it did. Um, yeah, people have sort of laughed at me um, in, in interviews when I said I, I was I, my first intention was to write a beach read <laughs> uh, because I was only interested in writing short stories. And I think that um, since we're talking about process, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but I think that, you know, you'll notice my love for writing short stories when I have these sort of vignettes that move throughout the book. But um, one of the things that I wanted to do was to really give people a sense of African-American community, the Mm -hmm. ways that... um, community uh, members bond, the way that there is conflict, the way that we resolve conflict, reconciliation, the flaws of particular community members. Um, And the reason that W.B. Du Bois is is such, um, you know, is the glue is because, you know, having attended a um, two uh, African-American colleges, historically black colleges. First, I attended Clark College before it became Clark Atlanta University. And then I transferred to Talladega College. Um, and that's where I graduated from. You could not go into very many classes in the social sciences or the humanities 
without encountering W.B. Du Bois. If you were in history, you encountered him, social science, English classes. And the thing that was so resonant for me is his love for Southern Black people. He adored Southern Black people. And so um, I wanted that love to be the spine of the novel so that when we move through um, different, you know, very difficult moments, historical moments, you would always know that we will return to that love. The character, the character in your book who represents that, I think, has got to be Uncle Root. It's Uncle Root, yeah. At Rutledge College, which is a fictional historical black college, but nevertheless really represents what the colleges are, are, are truly like. And Uncle Root is the wise uh, man who carries with him the history of his people. He takes family members through very dark times. Uh, he's a remarkable character. Tell us about how you created him. Is he based on someone that you know? No, he's he he's not. But um, but what I will say is that I had old people, um, and um, and in particular, um, not going into you know any kind of uh, details. I'm a private person, but I didn't have a very good relationship with my own father. So there were older men. Um, my parents were married, but, you know, there were older men who, uh, elderly men many times, who provided me this sort of father figure who, you know, that would reach out, you know, to them, mentors and that kind of stuff. And and I always felt safe with these men. Um, some of them were white. Some of them were black. Uh, you know, one in particular was Native American. And I wanted, knowing um, when I began to understand that Ailey was going to encounter a lot of difficulty in her life, I wanted there to be a touchstone for Ailey. Someone. Um, we've got to. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Finish your sentence, please. No, it's okay. I was, I was done. <laughs> Well, I love Uncle Root, and I think all the readers will, too. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back to talk more with Honoré Fanon Jeffers about her book, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. Patricia Murphy, both of us, as we read this book, were, as two white people, reading a book that takes us inside African-American life. One of the things that struck both of us was, um, although I think we both had a vague understanding of this, uh, the role of colorism in African-American uh, communities uh, is much more uh, important, at, the, at least certainly in the way that Honoré describes it in the book. And I, I think we're both a bit surprised by that. Yes, Patricia? Well, I thought it gave such um, uh, an insight that uh, neither of us had, of course, um, but also for uh, for you, Honoré, to make Ailey um, a really deep-skinned um, uh, character, for her to be the heroine, um, and for that to present challenges for her, um, even within her own community, um, I really uh, thought gave us uh, such insight into something that is really not ever discussed publicly. I think it may be indicated, but it's not something that um, that people outside of uh, the Black community really have access to or understanding of. But I thought that um, uh, that it was uh, really an insight that you provided. And I'd love to know more about why you chose to do that. Well, um, as I said before, um, as a darker-skinned um, Black woman myself, uh, it's difficult to see um, depictions of women who are my color and darker on television, um, in, in commercials, um, in print. Uh, I remember there was something that I found to be very painful 
that when Viola Davis, who I just think of as otherworldly <laughs> beautiful, um, first had her show, um, someone in print said she was not classically beautiful. And I found that deeply offensive as well as a lie. I, I found her <laughs> quite beautiful. Um, my mother is a chocolate brown woman, and um, and and I just remember when I was a little girl, you very rarely saw men of our class uh, middle. We were in uh, intellectual, so we didn't we didn't have money, but we were allowed in certain circles because my father had two degrees from Columbia and. Um, and you would always see a dark-skinned black man with a very fair-skinned wife. And so uh, my father was fair-skinned, my mother was dark-skinned. That was not a very common image. And um, people would say offensive things connected to uh, her color. Uh, when I would go places and I was with lighter-skinned women, you know, I would be ignored um, or, you know, someone someone would say, well, you know, you light skin until the real light skin woman walks into the room, you know, those, those sort of things. And I, I think that I wanted to um, depict, again, a reality that we talk about in black circles. So if you're reading a lot of black publications or you're sitting, you know, you have a lot of black friends, you're going to hear about that. But if you don't, you're not going to know, you know, outside of black communities, you know, a black person is a black person is a black person. But I have noticed this sort of attempt to erase um, darker skinned black women from the public, um, you know, realm. And so I wrote this book unabashedly for dark-skinned women. There's a love song to dark-skinned women, women who look like Michelle Obama, women who look like my mother, women who look like Viola Davis, women who look like Oprah Winfrey. Um, I'm unabashed about that. And um, it was important to me to have a heroine, not only who was dark-skinned, but also who was chubby. Because, you know, you don't typically see a chubby, you know, um, although in working class black communities, when I would go home for the summer, you know, I mean, the men, you know, the boys would be all over me. I was chubby. And, no, and you know, they would always say, you know, nobody wants a bone but a dog. But, but it was, but when I moved into a different class realm, there would always be this, you would be so pretty if you lost weight. So yeah, there's yeah, that class. No, but wait a minute. Ailey, all the boys like Ailey. They all, all she the boys has, love She has Ailey. all these suitors lined up. Yeah, she does. <laughs> Chubby or but, not. <laughs> right, but remember that her grandmother says mm -hmm. you, you could stand to lose weight. Um, her yeah. grandmother, so her maternal family all think that dark brown skinned women are beautiful. But when she, but her grandmother at some point says to her, you are very brown. So you need to marry someone who is lighter than you because women push the family forward. And by oh. forward, her paternal grandmother means closer and closer, the closest proximity to white that you yeah. can get. I remember the, one of the big reasons that my mother decided to move her support from Hillary Clinton to mm -hmm. Barack Obama was, you know, because she was like, there's no way he's going to win. There's no way he's going to win. And I said, Mama, I think he's going to win. She said, no, it's impossible. And then she <laughs> saw him on TV with Mrs. Obama. And she called me up and she said, that brother married a dark brown skinned woman and she is beautiful and elegant. And the next thing you know, Michael was giving money to, to his campaign, you know? And so I, I think that was very important, you know, to, and to a lot of black women, not just my mom. Um, 
You know, Patricia points out uh, the notion of colorism in it, and and you talk about how on TV uh, you tend to see images of more light-skinned, or or that that darker-skinned women particularly uh, have been criticized over the years. There's another thing that we don't normally see in black families on television. I mean, there are some examples of this, but typically... When we think about black, the portrayal of black people on television, quite often it's that they are criminals, they're poor, uh, whatever. Um, your book, very purposefully, and partly because it's your own background, uh, is about people uh, in, the, in, in modern times, professional uh, blacks. Uh, they want to be doctors, lawyers. I love, by the way, I, for whatever reason, I love the story of Jeff and Belle who live in the city, and they are Ailey's uh, uh, parents, uh, Ailey, Lydia, and Coco's parents, and and they're a perfect example of that. They live in a very underprivileged neighborhood in the city, wherever it is, but we always uh, recognize that they are uh, a, a step above. And your book tells us about Something that we in Atlanta know pretty well. We know the black professional class in Atlanta the way I don't think people in many cities do. But it's a powerful element in your story. Well, um, you know, I wanted to depict uh, middle class black people. That's, that's, that's my tribe, right? Um, middle class, uh, upwardly mobile black people. Uh, but I also wanted to show that no matter how far up you ascend that class ladder, whatever happens to the entire black community is happening to you. Yeah. When we see, for example, police brutality on the media, we all grieve together. Um, we all agree when we saw George Floyd, th- th- there was there was outrage from celebrities on down to, to the regular brothers standing at the corner. We all grieved. And so that's what I wanted. I wanted to show this connection. But again, this is not an image. The family, the Garfield family, an intact you know, African-American mm-hmm. family yep. with a father and a mother. But we have many of those families. We have so many of those families in our communities and, and working class communities, middle class communities, upper middle class communities. But that's not what we always see. We always see, you know, a perp walk, you know, or whatever. So I, I wanted to show a different side. Yeah, and that and and it's again insightful. Patricia, jump in. So we can you, you talk Patricia? about the lessons that are so relevant to today? And what is amazing to me is that we really started this book such a long time ago, and it wasn't at a time when these themes of of um, uh, living black in America and uh, the role of police brutality and uh, social justice and criminal justice and uh, so many pieces of social justice that we talk about now. You started it so long ago and were you, did you, could you have known how relevant it would be the moment that it was published and what, what drove you to, to begin to tell that story when maybe it would not have been a story that people we're really ready to hear um, when you began it. Well, I think social justice has always been an issue in Black communities. Um, more and more of our um, kindred, um, I try not to use um, too many gender terms now, right? Uh, black folks of all genders, <laughs> more and more are being incarcerated. This has always been an issue that we've been concerned about in our community. But I do think that, again, folks outside of our community did not know. Um, Yeah, I began this book in earnest in 2011, and uh, President Obama was in the White House. And, you know, we, we have this beautiful picture of Black people always so well-behaved, always in beautiful outfits, um, you know, going to 
uh, exotic locales or for even for political, you know, reasons. And um, I remember right around maybe 2015, uh, an African-American friend of mine said, well, you know, we don't have these issues anymore. Uh, why, you know, why do you need to talk about this? And there's always a moment when you are a student of history that you understand that past is prologue, right? Um, now, would I have wanted us to be in this moment simply so I could sell my books? Absolutely not, you know. But I thought, well, we, we need to know these these um, lessons. And then in 2017, um, we saw those men with tiki torches in Charlottesville, Virginia. And, you know, something just ran all through me. And I thought, oh, my God, we are here again. And then I knew that we were in a needful time and that, you know, there were some of us, I'm not the only person doing this work, um, that we were going to be needed again. And so I hunkered down and I just tried to make it as best as possible so that, you know, um, in African-American literary traditions, we don't just write for ourselves. We write to make the world a better place. And so I was, I was hoping that this novel would do that. Um, I, I, I read an essay that you wrote for uh, Kenyan Review that, uh, in which you talk about your own life, uh, about your mother. Your mother surprised you when she told you that she was able to cast a ballot, I guess when she was much younger, in Eatonton. She actually voted in Eatonton, uh, which is interesting. And she was an activist herself, uh, you tell mm -hmm. us. The other thing, though, you tell us is that she did not talk about Jim Crow with you when you were growing up. But at one point, you did learn about Moore's Ford Bridge, the lynchings there, the notorious lynchings there. And you did ask her about that, and you asked her, how did she feel when that happened? Um, and, and I think that all fits into this narrative we're talking about now of, um, of social justice, about, about uh, somehow uh, how do we uh, get past the, the horrible uh, crimes of the past, uh, reconcile with one another. It's so important in your book. It is important in my book because, you know, I mean, I'm an older person and I'm in my 50s. And I think as you get older, you know, you when you're young, you think you're going to live forever. Um, once you get past that hill, 40, you know, 45, if, if you live to be, you know, 90 or whatever, you're, you're, you're beginning to think about what kind of, what kind of world is going to be here when when you pass on and um i think about my mom a lot i think about the way that she never complained about her childhood about the difficulties that she had to go through um it was only when i became a much more sensitive person in my late 20s and my early 30s and i began to Ask her, you know, mama, you know, what about this and what about that? And, um, but I remember when she was a voting rights activist and, you know, you're referencing the essay where I talked about when I was a little girl and um, yeah. she would take me, you know, to the homes and um, she was, she was stomping, you know, uh, stumping for uh, Jim Carter. And I would say, I'm voting for Jimmy Carter, you know, and, and, it, it, and you know, for me, it was like a, um, a field trip. But as I've gotten older, I understand black women pass these sort of lessons to their girl children. You know, I think of uh, Sister Stacey Abrams, whom my mother worships, not only because of the work that she has done, but also because my mother's a graduate of Spelman College and Stacey Abrams is a graduate of Spelman College, you know. And so sometimes when Sister Abrams will be on TV or something like that um, and mom will say, 
look at her wearing film in blue. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, we've, we've got to get to our last break of the show, but we'll be back with more in just a moment. Patricia Murphy and I are talking today to Honoré Fanon Jeffers, who is the uh, author of the masterful, really most talked about novel, I think, one of the most talked about novels of the year, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. It's an Oprah book club choice. It doesn't get much better than that. Um, and, and Patricia, as I want you to uh, take the question, but but one of the things I thought of as I read this book is the, the, the New York director, the Broadway director, Kenny Leon, um, who's been a guest on this show any number of times. Kenny always says that when he directs a play, what he's thinking about is the more specific he makes a person on that stage, the more universal the story of that person becomes. And that, Patricia, is what Honoré has done with this book. I feel like I not only know these people, but things that I've thought about, slavery, Jim Crow, things that to me are horrible uh, episodes of the past suddenly take on a whole new meaning, as do the good things, the deep family relationships and ties among people. In any case, it's your turn <laughs> to ask a question. <laughs> well, I completely agree. Um, it certainly brought us into a world where so many people um, have not had a chance to inhabit. And so in that way, it's just, it was just really, it was great company is really what I think about with this book. Um, but Honoré, I don't want us to get off without touching on, um, we've talked so much about the history in the book and the research that's gone into it, but there's a le- there are also songs in here that you've written. And there's just a level of um, uh, lyricism that I think is so lovely. And uh, once I read the book, I started Googling you and uh, uh, saw that you had some of these characters and some of these um, stories come to you in dreams and dreaming was a big part of this book for you. Yes. Um, you know, when I was envisioning the story as a, the novel as a beach read, um, you know, uh, you know, I just was, you know, trying to write something light so I could make my, um, my uh, uh, agent money. And then what happened is <laughs> I, began, <laughs> I began to have these dreams where, um, you know, and I knew they were from the past. And um, and I knew that if we, every time, anytime you write about slavery these days, it's going to have to be difficult. And so... Even though I didn't mean for poetry to be in the book, it was the, you know, the dreams when I would wake up, it would be like poetry. But as I began to craft and keep the poetry, I was glad that they had come to me, that I received them that way, because I feel like the more pain you have, the more beauty there has to be in a book. You, you, you have to, the beauty comforts the reader as they move through these difficult moments. There has to be something. And there also has to be joy, you know, at intervals. And at the end of, of, of the book, no spoilers, but, you know, that, that's what I wanted. I wanted people to understand that even though you have to travel through these difficult places, you know, there's going to be joy at the end and there's going to be beauty at the end. You know what? I love what you just said. And it reminds me of a, of a line in the book that meant so much to me. I grew up in Chicago. I worked in Chicago. I came here and I was... I, I didn't quite understand what to make of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and all, all of that in, in terms of who we are as people today. Bell, living in the city, is longing to go back, come back home to Chickasetta, the fictional town that your people... She says, born in the city, her husband, talking about Jeff, wasn't familiar with the taste of healthy green food you had picked only hours before, the sight of earth not taken over by concrete, that in darkness, if there was no trouble, the only sounds came from small beings. But here's the key line. He didn't know that you could ache for a place even when it had hurt you so badly. That's a profound thought, I think, Honoré. Well, 
I I cried when I wrote, you know, those words because I do I do ache for the South. Um, when I drew the last time, you know, I drove South was in 2019, and when I hit that sign that said "Welcome to Mississippi," and you know, for people who have heard about Mississippi, they're like, "Why in the world would you get all happy?" When you when you saw that Mississippi sign, and as I you know I kept, and then I saw Welcome to Alabama. But there's a feeling that those of us who grew up in the South have, and 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 we do ache for that place. Um, and you write about it. I fell in love with the family life in the South uh, that you write so the the rural South that you write so compellingly about. And I know Patricia. We've shared that feeling, too. We wanted to be part of that family circle, didn't we, Patricia? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and we were. And I do feel like also maybe the story's not over. Um, That is what I left with was thinking just 800 pages. I mean, you can imagine hopefully what comes next. All right. I we will leave it at that with with a, a comment from Patricia saying Honoré Fanon Jeffers, your book Love Songs of W. E. B. Du Bois is wonderful, but at eight hundred pages there's not enough of it, so we look forward to reading the next chapter in the life of Ailey and her and and her uh, uh, family line to come. Uh, thank you, Patricia, so much for being part of this conversation. I couldn't have asked for a better partner for it. And Honoré, what a joy to get a chance to talk to you. Best of luck uh, with uh, this book, although you don't need it at this point. It is getting marvelous reviews from everyone. Thank you so much for being here, Honoré. Thank you. I appreciate you. We're out of time. We're back, of course, on Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear a mask when you're indoors, and get a vaccine. Please get vaccinated. See you all Monday.